blessed and lucky to have Jessica Perez from the Hatchery, which is one of um, the Disciples of Christ in initiative programs um, in our region. It's a school that is a hybrid program that fuses public theology with practical engagement. And so Jessica is in her second year there, and her um, focus is food insecurity. And she's going to be preaching and then share a little bit about the hatchery and the work that she does with Spence there um, and talk to us a little bit just about the issue of food insecurity. So please welcome Jessica. Well, thank you for having me with you here today. Oh, I love that last song. It's one of my favorites. So thank you. And I was so um, happy to meet Jessica and Ryan and to have them ask if I wanted to come and just be here today. Uh, and like Jessica was saying, I am a student with Hatchery LA and um, people ask what that is. It's in its second year, and so basically we're really trying to figure that out. But <laughs> we, uh, our, our focus is um, common cause communities, and so that's a common uh, faith in Jesus, a cause to rally around, and communities to deepen relationships. And so it seems like from the short time that I've been here that you guys really understand the heart of that, and so it's really great to see that. Um, and so a little bit about me, and maybe the first thing I should start with. Uh, public speaking is not like my strong suit. Um, quick story. So I used to work with the California Conservation Corps uh, when I was a volunteer with AmeriCorps, and I would help people prepare for interviews. And these were guys a lot of times, and uh, in women who had a rough life, they had um, stuff going on that was difficult, and so a lot of times they would come in and talk to me and I got to hear their amazing stories, um, and they, they just seemed like they were fearless until they had to go into an interview. <laughs> and I had this one guy just panicking come up to me once, and he's like, uh, I don't know what to do. I have this interview. What should I do? Like, how do I prepare? I'm like, it's okay. I'll run through it with you. You've prepared. You know all your stuff. Like, you're going to be great at this. Just breathe and use your diaphragm. And then, like, five minutes later, he came back to me. And he's like, oh, but I think I lost my diaphragm. <laughs> so <laughs> I kind of, I feel that right now. And... Um, but one of the things that fascinates me is how food and stories shape our identity. And that's really the focus of why I came um, to Hatchery LA. It's been a big part of my life. Um, and Michael Pollan has a book and documentary called Cooked, and it pinpoints cooking as a thing that makes us human. And cooking began when humans first started using fire. It's also when sacrifices began to appear, which was basically a, an attempt to provide a meal for the gods. It seems like that has some pretty big assumptions attached to it, like the gods are enough like us to want to eat and care enough that humans could get their attention. This made me curious about the first time human beings used fire in the scriptures, and this first appears in the story of Cain and Abel. So 
Uh, I'd like to read that together now. I think it should be in uh, your notes. And that's in Genesis 4, and we'll just start out in verse 1. Now the, the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, for his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me away from the soil, and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and anyone who meets me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who came upon him would kill him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. I grew up going to church, and this story was very familiar to me. And it was also very straightforward. Cain did not do right. Abel did right. God rejected Cain's offering. God accepted Abel's offering. Cain killed his brother. Cain was punished. End of story. For me, that was probably a good enough lesson because I had three younger brothers that I was constantly competing with. One was smarter than I was, one had a better moral compass than I had, and one was sweeter than I was. Our family stories clearly illustrate these points. When I was really young and my mom baked cookies, chocolate chip cookies, she would always tell us not to get into the cookie jar. And Naturally, we couldn't live with that. And I felt like it seemed a little unfair to prohibit something that smelled what I imagined heaven to be like. My mom loves to tell how when I would steal cookies, I would push a chair up to the counter, making all kinds of noise, climb up, move the cookie jar down to the counter, eat the cookies, put the jar back in the wrong place, <laughs> leave crumbs on the counter, and forget to put the chair back where I had found it. I could never understand how she knew that it was me. My brother, though, he was a year younger than me. He would silently push his chair up to the counter and climb up, 
and then he would leave the cookie jar where it was and meticulously take the cookies out of it. And then he would scan the countertops to make sure that he wiped away all the stray crumbs and put the chair back exactly where he had found it. And the only reason my mom knew that he ever did this is because she happened to walk in in the middle of the process one time. But I think she was so impressed that she couldn't bring herself to punish him. Or one time my brothers and I took some of my dad's tools down to the river that was a 30-foot drop back behind our backyard. And we'd been warned against touching his tools and we'd been warned against going down to the river because none of us could swim. But we wanted to dig a tunnel from our house to the river, which was about a half acre. We thought the job would be quick and easy, so we were surprised when the lookout informed us that our dad had returned home before we'd gotten very far on our project. But no problem, the escape route was you'd climb up from the riverbank, then there were some trees and bushes, there was a chicken coop, then the yard, and then the house. So I figured that if we could just get back to the yard, my dad wouldn't know that we had been down to the river and then we could just go back and get the tools the next day. So we've already confirmed my stealthiness from the previous story. Um, and I'll never forget the relief that I felt tiptoeing past the edge of the chicken coop and taking my first step out into the yard when suddenly I felt a heavy hand on my shoulder. And of course, my dad had been waiting for me on the other side of the chicken coop. So he asked what we'd been doing and where we'd been, and I wouldn't crack, so he sent me to my room for the rest of the day. But my middle brother, though, he collected the tools, put them all back where he had found them, and then went and apologized to my dad. My dad thanked him for his honesty and then sent him on his way to enjoy the rest of his day. My youngest brother was really just adorable. Whenever he would sing, people would completely melt because he had the sweetest little voice. Whenever I sing, people would comment on my good pronunciation of big words. I never ended up killing any of those brothers, even though I'm sure by now it's clear that they were terrible. And while Kane and I were both oldest children, his problem was that he didn't recognize where he needed to take responsibility improve. When I heard the story growing up, it was a given that Cain had not offered his best to God. That's a common interpretation of the story with the long history. It was a simple matter of needing to work on character formation and improving technique because if Cain would have just brought a better offering, or if I was a more skilled cookie thief, or faster at apologizing, or focused more on cuteness, rather than words when I sang, then the problems would be solved. So in the final analysis, Cain was just wicked and Abel was righteous. In looking at this text recently, I started to wonder where the view of Cain as evil had come from. And it goes back in church history to St. Augustine, who thought Abel would be in the heavenly city with the righteous and Cain in the earthly city with the wicked. And it also goes back to the writer of Hebrews and even to Jesus. But even farther, it goes back to the way that this story was originally translated in Greek. It translates the same Hebrew word two different ways. 
So in the case of Cain, the word is translated as sacrifice, which would have meant that he left a portion of his offering for God and took some for himself. In the case of Abel, the word is translated as gift, which would have meant that he left the whole portion for God. And so the initial rejection of Cain by God is implied to be motivated from an error on Cain's part. God obviously just wanted all of the roasted vegetables for himself. It seems to indicate a clear cause and effect relationship, and that's comforting. I can learn the obvious lesson to not murder, and also the lesson to bring my best to God. I have a 100% success rate so far on the first part, and I try really hard to put effort into the second part. The outcome seems to be entirely within my control. So I can safely distance myself from Cain and then set the story aside as good for children. However, the older Hebrew text allows for a more nuanced interpretation of the characters in this familiar story. First, Cain was the pride and joy of his mother. When she named him after his birth, Eve's words can be translated as either with the Lord's help or like the Lord, I have brought forth a man. As the oldest son, he would have been highly honored and he would be the future decision maker and the holder of the family's wealth. He was responsible for carrying on his family's lineage. Second, Cain took on the vocation of his father in working the fields. This was understood as divinely ordained in Genesis 3 by God. So far, the picture of Cain seems to be of a successful man. He is doing everything right, working in the family business and taking God's words to his parents seriously. Cain is in a position of influence and basically has his life under control, which means he sets the terms. I say Cain sets the terms because he was the initiator of the first sacrifices in the scripture. There's no mention previously in the text of it being a requirement on God's part for worship. Ancient sacrifices were seen as a way to gain the God's favor or even to obligate them to do something. Not that we know anything about that today. So if Cain was inviting God to share a meal, maybe it was a thank you dinner for that season's harvest, or maybe it was a business dinner to ensure God's cooperation in the future. We don't know the motivation Cain had for wanting to make a sacrifice, but the Hebrew text does seem to show that Abel may have just been following his older brother's lead. It's not even clear that Abel knew the God he was sacrificing to. And speaking of Abel, one thing we do know about him from this story is that his name means vapor or meaninglessness. From a modern psychology point of view, I think the correct term for that would be bad parenting. But obviously in the story, it's foreshadowing what we come to know, that Abel's life will be unjustly cut short. While Cain worked the soil, Abel tended sheep, and raising flocks required a lot of space for roaming and a lot of exposure to the elements. Agriculture required clear boundaries effective barriers, especially if sheep were in the area, and stability. The potential for conflict is already apparent. So what about God in this story? The reason for God not accepting Cain's sacrifice and accepting Abel's sacrifice is not given. It just says that was the decision. When I was talking with 
um, Walter Brueggemann, who's a Hebrew Bible scholar earlier this summer, um, he thought that this story seemed to highlight God's arbitrariness. And those aren't two words we're usually comfortable putting together, God and arbitrary. Up to that point, Cain was at the top. He had every reason to believe that his sacrifice would be accepted, but suddenly his world didn't make sense anymore. It changed. He had been favored, then he was not. No explanation given or owed to him or us. It's important to note that this was an origin story passed on in a community that understood itself to have been liberated by God when they were slaves in Egypt. This was a God who took sides with those who were weak and unexpected. A God who was not bound to uphold expectations of those in power. A God free to choose. So possibly this became a subversive meal. Not only did God decline to accept the terms associated with it from the oldest son, God accepted Abel's sacrifice, the younger son, who may have just been there as a third wheel to begin with. But for Cain, this unexpected acceptance and legitimization of Abel couldn't be tolerated. In this light, maybe God's counsel to Cain was not meant to be a divine scolding that his sacrifice had not been up to par. It was both a word of warning and hope for the future. In verse 6 it says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will your countenance be lifted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. When we don't do well, it's then that our brother becomes a threat. It's when our world suddenly doesn't make sense anymore that we become angry. Perhaps God was acknowledging that and sharing with Cain that there were still possibilities that existed in his new reality. Tragically, what followed was senseless violence, and it's something that we would like to be farther removed from today. But we know the pain of rejection and of unmet expectations, and we've tried to handle others when we cannot deal with ourselves. It seems we feel compelled to ask time and time again if we must still be our brother's keeper. Perhaps King was jealous of the preference God had showed for his younger brother and wanted to remove the competition for divine affection. Or perhaps he was trying to maintain his hold on the land that he claimed and depended upon. But the world had changed, and his attempts to master it by dominating his brother did not lead to a return of comfort and security. He also feared that what he had done to his brother would now be done to him. In the story, God's choice for Abel was not understood as undone because Cain had ended his life. In verse 25, it says, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another child instead of Abel because Cain killed him. God's choice for Abel was thought of by Eve to be rebirthed in Seth as a gift. This God who took up vapor and meaninglessness and who also gave man, though this time not in the proud sense of Adam, which means earth, but in the sense of man as mortal. 
This is also the God who in the beginning hovered over the waters and chaos to bring forth life. And even for Cain, there was new life. The life he fought so hard to maintain could not be brought back. Leaving his home and land meant leaving everything, including God's presence, because gods were thought of to be geographically based. And yet, he was given divine protection as he went on his journey. After they settled in the land of wandering, Cain's wife gave birth to a son. Cain began to build a city named for him. His descendants became known as craftsmen and artisans, though violence also became part of their ongoing legacy. It could be argued that Cain didn't ever give up working to achieve security. Isn't that ultimately the goal of agriculture and of cities? Of course it is, but if we do not automatically characterize Cain as a villain, then like the rest of us, in his life there is room for success and failure, celebration and anger, pride and shame, devastation and rebuilding. Cain was the first to invite God to dinner, unaware that God is a most unpredictable and disruptive dinner guest. Let's now turn from the first supper, supper to the last supper. Maybe Jesus, the image of the, or the invisible God, might still end up being less unpredictable and disruptive. But actually, in the gospel accounts of their last meal together, Jesus reinterprets a familiar yearly celebration to include references of his own body and blood. He also predicts his coming execution. Jesus tells his disciples that one of their own, a trusted companion, will betray him. And Peter, one of his closest friends, will deny their friendship. As if that wasn't awkward enough, Jesus redefines commonly understood social roles. In John's Gospel, Jesus is the logos, or the or the word through which all things were created. Yet, during this Last Supper, he takes the position of a servant, not metaphorically by adopting a more accepting and open attitude. Jesus picks up an actual basin of water and washes the dirty feet of his followers. That night ends with Jesus being forcefully taken from them. The world would not be the one they were counting on. It would never be in their complete control. What they had was a mysterious promise that they would not be completely abandoned. There was, and still is, the expectant hope of new life. Thank you. So, today, I'm just kind of wanting to sit with some of those questions for a little bit, because I think that's one of the beauties, the beautiful things of story, is that even in these ancient texts, I think there are things that we resonate with. And so maybe in your own life, you can identify with some of the frustration and the anger and disorientation that Cain had, or maybe like Abel, you could be feeling ignored or even attacked. Um, and I think the answer that God gave in the first supper, but also in the last, is that God is there and present and with us.
And I think because of that, um, we're able to be together uh, and in our community and that we can um, meet needs that are very real and tangible. And that's one of the reasons that food and food security is so important for me. Um, and I know that in LA County, there's about 1.4 million people who experience that. Um, and so I'm really excited being here and just hearing you know, what you are already doing as a congregation to help meet those needs. And um, it's very encouraging for me and it's exciting for me to hear about your um, feast that you'll be having for Thanksgiving. And so I'd just like to encourage that as we go, we can just consider what it looks like in our lives to have God over for dinner. Well, thanks, Jessica. That was good. Well, let's stand and let's sing a song together as we close our morning. There's nothing worth more that will ever come close. Nothing can compare. You're our living hope. It's your presence. Well, I've tasted and seen of the sweetest of loves where my heart becomes free and my shame is undone in your presence Lord. let's sing holy spirit and holy spirit you are welcome Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for. To be overcome by your presence, Lord. Your presence, Lord. nothing worth more that will ever come close nothing can compare you're our living home it's your presence Lord I've tasted and seen of the sweetest of loves where my heart becomes free 
when my shame is undone, it's your presence, Lord, and Holy Spirit, you are welcome here, come from this place and fill the your glory, God, is what our hearts long for, to be overcome by your presence, Lord, your presence, Lord, let us become more aware of your presence let us experience the glory of your goodness let us become more aware of your presence let us experience the glory of your goodness let us become more aware of your presence let us experience the glory of your goodness let us become more aware of your presence let us experience the glory of your goodness and fill the atmosphere your glory God is what our hearts long for to be overcome by your presence Lord Thank you for joining us. Go with God, have a good week, and we'll see you next week.